Evidence and Answers. How can we have confidence in the gospel in these dark times? How can Christians win the battle against the growing force of secularism? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today's message by Dr. Oz Guinness was recorded at our recent Hawaii Apologetics Conference. This conference is hosted each year by Pat Zucran. Pat presents many renowned Christian apologists and international speakers, all experts in their field. This year's theme was Apologetics That Connects. If you're unable to hear this entire message, all of our broadcasts are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now here's Dr. Guinness with part two of his message entitled, Renaissance, Confidence in the Gospel No Matter How Dark the Times. The other city, at its heart, has a love for God. And out of that grows a humanity that lives in the city of God, typified by Jerusalem and the coming Jerusalem. But here's his point. And he goes back to our Lord. Our Lord calls us to be, you know well, in the world, but not of the world. So Augustine says, the city of God is living in the city of man. Ultimately, they're completely contradictory, but immediately they're all tangled together. And we who are followers of Jesus are resident aliens This city of man is not our home. Hawaii is not your ultimate home. America's not your ultimate home. The earth is not our ultimate home. We are resident aliens in it, but not of it. Now, that little in but not of, very easy to say. You've heard speakers, I've just done it. You've heard preachers, many people saying that. You could add to it. In the Old Testament, the Israelites coming out of the Exodus... They're called by the Lord to plunder the Egyptian gold. Then a few chapters later, they're condemned for setting up a golden calf. Plunder the gold, but no golden calf. In, but not of. Paul says, be not conformed, but transformed. Now you can see there's a balance there. There's a tension there. The Hartford Statement says, we are against the world for the world. Now, these things are very easy to say. In, not of. Not conformed, transformed. Plunder the gold, no golden cloth. Against the world, for the world. Now, the trouble is, it's a nice little way of saying it, but people hear it as if saying so makes it so. It doesn't. We've got to live it so. Now, think for a minute. In, but not of. There are two extremes we know are wrong. One extreme, obviously, is not to be in it. To be so otherworldly where no earthly use. Sadly, there are many Christians like that still. Forgive me, I was shocked when I read stuff and hear stuff when I come to Hawaii that Christians don't vote. No pastor should tell you what to vote. That's your conscience and your choice. But to vote as responsible American citizens... That's a shame on you, not you particularly, but anyone in Hawaii who's a follower of Jesus who doesn't vote. We're responsible citizens. We're called to be in the world. There's no option there. The other extreme, though, is to be in it and of it. In other words, to be either otherworldly, no earthly use, or worldly, and so we're 
powerless. Now, let's be blunt. That's the problem of America. Let's put it simply. How could tiny... I'm a great admirer of the Jewish people. They are less than 2% of America, but they punch way above their weight in all sorts of areas. An incredible... Now, let's be blunt. A group that I don't admire are the LGBT activists. They're less than 2% of America. And they have incredible cultural influence. We are far more than 70% of America. And we have almost no cultural influence today. And the simple fact is the church in America is weak because it's worldly. At many points, it's more shaped by the culture than it is by the gospel. And so there's no power. But how then do we have that power of being in but not of? Because when the church captures that tension, it becomes a tension with the world that is literally culture-shaping. We're a counterculture that's creative. Well, it requires three very simple things. It requires, first of all, obviously, engagement. We're called to be in it. All our callings, high school teachers, nurses, doctors, lawyers, computer scientists, you name it. We are called to engage. No option there. Engage. But secondly, and here's a missing one, we're called to discern. If we're engaging the world, we've got to know whether the world we're engaging is helpful or harmful. And there's always double-edged. Some parts are great, some parts are horrific. We've got to do constant assessments, testing the spirits, discerning the hour, reading the signs of the times, discerning. And many Christians, more of this in the second talk, many Christians simply are undiscerning. But thirdly, we need courage. Courage. Engaged, discerning, and courageous. Why? Because there are points when our culture is powerfully against us and we've got to say no. Alexander the Great used to say, and Winston Churchill used to quote him, the Persians would always be slaves because they did not know how to say no. Many Christians are so amiably accommodating that whatever the culture goes to, they go along with it, undermining Scripture in a thousand ways. We've got to have people today who are prepared to take up their crosses and follow our Lord. And every time the way of Jesus contradicts the way of our world today, it takes courage. But when we capture that, and here's the lesson of history, when the church is truly in but not of, that creative tension becomes culture-shaping, and the church, under the power of the Holy Spirit, becomes powerful. The gospel is powerful in humanity. Fourthly, I always forget my numbers. I think it's fourth. Explore with me the secrets of the dynamics of the kingdom. How does the kingdom spread? We're at a fascinating moment in terms of thinking because there's lots of excellent scholarship that tells us how ideas shape culture. There's a book called The Sociology of Philosophy. It doesn't matter what it is, but it's about 800 pages long. It examines the influence of human ideas over many, many centuries and how they shape culture. And there's a huge amount to be learned from it. It's true. Although, if you put it in terms of Ecclesiastes, it's true under the sun. In other words, it's true as far as it goes. It's not wrong, although it's just purely at a secular level. Now, what does this man say? But we, of course, are members of the kingdom. 
So we can learn from truth around us, but it's not decisive and final for us. This man puts it in three very simple ways. You could boil the 800 pages down to about 10. First, ideas influence culture through leaders, not followers. You'd think that should be obvious. They're leaders, and people follow them. Now, we've got to be honest, our Catholic brothers and sisters are better at that than those of us who are evangelicals. If anything, their problem is to go so much to leaders, they become elitist, and that's a problem. But since the Second Awakening in the early 19th century, evangelicals in America have largely been populist, trusting in mass movements and resentful against elites and suspicious of leaders. And so you see lots of mass movements we created, but they're all like waves breaking on rocks that leave the rock unmoved because you affect things through leaders. Many Christians even misread the Bible through because of that. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, not many mighty, not many wise, etc. You know that. He doesn't say not any. He says not many. But because of the way some people read that, they drown out all the leaders that there are in the Bible. There's an incredible stress on leaders from Moses downwards. You look at Acts 13. Who is the first convert in the first missionary journey? It's the governor of Cyprus. The top man in the island is the very first convert described as coming to Christ. A leader, if ever there was one. And there are many, many others like that. And as evangelicals, we've got to recover a proper view of leadership. America does too, but that's another problem. The second thing the book teaches us is that ideas are influential from the center rather than the periphery. The center of a culture, usually the capital city. See, France. Paris is not quite in the center of France, but it's the almost, and it's the clear center of pretty well everything in France. Now, America doesn't have anywhere like that. You have three big capitals. Washington's the political capital. New York's the financial capital. L.A. is the media entertainment capital. You could say Silicon Valley is the IT capital, and so on. You know, they are the center. But wherever the center is, it defines reality. It creates an agenda. It shapes people's fashions. And if you touch the center, it spreads much faster everywhere. Where did Paul always aim for? Rome. Rome. He got there a rather different way than he thought, but he aimed for Rome. Now, our Jewish friends know that. They were persecuted terribly in Europe. So where did they put themselves when they're only a tiny minority in this country? In New York, in Washington, Chicago, Los Angeles. And they've had incredible influence. Take Catholics. Where did they put their first university? In the nation's capital, Georgetown. And us? Most of the evangelical centers are out in the boonies. And we wonder why we don't have influence. And you should be praying for the leaders here on the islands and so on and so on. Now, the third little point in that book is one that we do well. Ideas shape culture through leaders, not followers, through the center rather than the periphery, and through networks, not through institutions or individuals. Networks. We're great at this. The disciples... The Benedictine order, or after the Reformation, the Moravians. 
Oh, John Wesley and his cell groups. I'm an Oxford man. In the Oxford histories, they say our most influential graduate, nearly 900 years, we've had 26 prime ministers, several presidents, Cambridge only has two, but they say the most influential Oxford graduate, John Wesley. He preached the gospel, but the gospel went down to his cell groups, and in 25 years, he lifted 20% of England out of poverty, not through anti-poverty programs, but by living Christianly, because they had the networks that became incredibly powerful and changed the world. Wilberforce and his Clapham circle, C.S. Lewis and the Inklings were better at that one than networks. Now, all those three ways of saying it are secular. A lot of truth to them, but they're not particularly a feature of the kingdom. How does the kingdom spread? I'd mention three things here. First, clearly the kingdom spreads through the leadership of the Holy Spirit. How does the gospel get to Africa? The Spirit sends Philip to meet the Ethiopian official. How does it get to Europe? Paul didn't want to go to Europe. Europe, put it in modern jargons, was not in Paul's next steps. He wanted to go to Bithynia, Asia Minor, but he's blocked, checked, frustrated. And then he sees this vision of the man from Macedonia, and this, he concludes the Spirit is sending him there. And one historian says when that unknown rabbi crosses from Asia to Europe, it puts more stamp on world history than the great sea battle of Actium, which settled the fate of the Roman Empire a few miles away. The Spirit led him. Most of us this evening are Gentiles. Dear old Peter didn't want it to come to us. We were the dogs. We were the unwashed. We were the unclean. The Spirit blasted apart his prejudices and sent him down, and the gospel came even to us. The Spirit. Now, why do we need to say that? Let's be blunt again. Thank God you're an exception here. But in many parts of America and the West, the church is tone deaf. In the Scriptures and in the traditional world, the unseen was not unreal. It was more real. But in the modern world, the advanced modern world, the real world is the world you can see, touch, taste, calculate, measure, etc., etc. That's the real world. So the unseen today is unreal today, and the whole supernatural dimension is lost to many people in the church. So you want a new thing? Get your yellow pad. Vision, mission. You could go on down the line. Of course, at the bottom of the page, you have to have measurable outcomes. And you sit there with your yellow pad, and in 20 minutes you can figure the whole thing out. Put a man on the moon, market a perfume, grow a church. Who needs God? We can do a lot. Much of the church has lost the direct following of the Spirit of God. The second thing you see in the Scriptures and in history is that the kingdom moves through surprising reversals. We see this in the Old Testament, we see it in the New. Our Lord, the first, last, the last, first, the humble exalted, the exalted humbled. It is the upside-down kingdom, not the people we expect. This reverses the idea that, it's yes, leaders are incredibly important, but sometimes it's the person that nobody sees. Maybe one of you here is praying, or you do for Hawaii, far more than all the preachers in the island together, or whatever. The kingdom moves in the most surprising ways of upside-down reversals, and we've got to follow the movement of the Spirit of God. The third thing we see is that great culture is almost always a byproduct. 
Not a goal. Too much talk in America today of how we're going to win the country back and all this sort of stuff. No. We're called to follow our callings, our utmost for his highest. The fallout from that, the byproduct from that is great culture. Take someone like Johann Sebastian Bach, one of the three greatest musicians in our Western world. Everyone today recognizes he was a genius. He didn't set out in some pretentious way to create great music. He was following his calling. You see, he writes in the margin of the score, Glory be to the Lamb. And as he follows his calling, and he had musical gifts, the fallout, this incredible music. Glory to the Lord, praise to the Lord in the cantatas, and of course, beauty for everyone in some of his great music. Great culture. It's not something we aim at as if we're going to produce it in some great way in the next 10, 20, 30. No, no. Faithful to the Lord in all our callings, whatever they are. And the fallout is culture. One last point. We need to learn the lessons of 2,000 years of Christian engagement with culture. The church has been at it 2,000 years. You'd think we'd be pretty wise by now. But we tend to make the same mistakes all over again. Now, there are a lot of lessons you can learn. I want to mention quickly three paradoxical ones because they're sobering. The first is this. Periods and times of success often carry the seeds of the worst failures because we don't critique ourselves when we're successful. Take Christendom. Christendom was incredible. The first attempt to build a consistent all-Christian society. But Christendom produced later the Inquisition and many of the horrors for which the church is attacked today. Why? You can see the problem right back at the beginning. Remember St. Augustine, the city of God in the city of man. In, but not of. The first historian of Christendom described it like this. I set about writing the story of two cities, obviously thinking of St. Augustine. He said, but after a while I realized I'm only really talking about one city, the city of God, Christendom. In other words, they derived. They weren't in, but not of any longer. They derived success. And of course, it was corrupted, terribly corrupted. And you can see it's often when our churches explode with success and so on that the seeds of the worst failures are sown. We've got to be humble and always have a prophetic critique. The second thing you can see is more encouraging. The darkest hours are truly always just before the dawn. Sounds like a cliche. It's the story of revival. Five minutes before the Lord speaks, the spiritual landscape is often desolate and bleak. Five minutes after the Lord speaks, everything's changed. If you go back to Thomas Jefferson in the 1790s, he's, you know that was one of the low points of the church, he was predicting in 1790s that evangelicalism would disappear and Unitarianism would triumph. Poor man. He forgot the Holy Spirit. Then came, within a year or two, the Second Awakening. Unitarianism almost disappeared. And the first 50 years of the 19th century were the evangelical century. The darkest hours are just before the dawn. We should never be discouraged but fall on our knees and ask God to do what only He can do. The last little lesson is one that particularly the younger generation need to think about. The church always goes forward best by going back 
first. Now that sounds counterintuitive. In the traditional world, there was the past, the present, and the future, and we have the same today, obviously. The only one anyone knew about was the past. It had happened, it was in the can. They didn't know much about the present except for their own small village or town. Nothing at all about the future unless you're in touch with some quack like a shaman. But now, we have instant total information about the present. You can see everything in the world today as it happens. And we have our future is telling us what's coming. So, the one that doesn't matter to us is the past. We may not be extreme like Henry Ford, history is bunk. But we think we know everything about the present and lots about the future. And so, for modern people, the moment that matters is when the future becomes the present, the so-called urgent now. You seize that, you've got it made. So, you've got to be relevant. You've got to be up to date. You've got to be innovative. You've got to think out of the box. You've always got to be right there. Nonsense. Do you think for a minute, two of the greatest movements in history were the Reformation and the Renaissance. Neither of them were progressive in that modern sense. They were movements of recovery. Things were in bad shape because things had been forgotten, and they recovered what had been forgotten. The Renaissance went back to the roots of classical learning. The Reformation went back to Jesus and the Scriptures and Paul and justification by faith. And going back, they discovered what they'd lost, and then they surged forward. The church goes forward best by going back first because we're weak, because we've lost something we should have had in the gospel. And so much of the generation now chasing after relevance, even a magazine called Relevance and so on, they're just turning out to be trendy and relevant. And we can see that's what liberals did for 200 years. The rage for relevance leads to irrelevance. The only thing that's eternally relevant is eternity. Let me just finish with this thought. In that debate I mentioned 70 years ago, in the course of the debate, someone raised the question, could the church be warmed again the third time? We'd say revived, renewed, restored, take your own word. Could it be warmed again? Well, here you have these eminent Christian thinkers. One of them, major theologian, said, I'm not sure. The challenges of modernity are so great, maybe it can't. But one of them, the Catholic historian Christopher Dawson, he answered like this, can the church be warmed again? He said every Christian should say yes, but we mustn't say yes too quickly or too lightly because on the outcome to that question depends the future of humanity. You with me? On the outcome of that question, the revival, the restoration of the gospel in the church, especially in the advanced modern world, depends the future of humanity. We know that many of the faiths like Buddhism and Hinduism, they don't even get into some of the big questions. We know that secularism, when it comes to many of the big is bankrupt. But we dare not just say the gospel is the answer. We've got to demonstrate it and out into the tough questions that the world is facing and show it. And as he said, for the future of humanity. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. 
Evidence and Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You will find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, State Farm Agent Sue Ann Liu. For all of your insurance needs, home, auto, or life, contact Sue Ann Liu at sueannliu.com or give her a call. Her number in Hawaii is area code 808-567-6116. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers.